Well, good morning, Southside. Thank you for having our family here, Pastor Blake and the elders here. Thank you so much for the invitation to present the field and to bring the word to you this morning. As you've seen already, our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. So if you've not yet opened your Bible to that text, I invite you to do so at this moment. And while you're making your way to our text, let me ask you this. If you were to leave the building here today and you were to make your way to lunch and, and somebody were to come up to you and ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or in other words, at its core, what is Christianity? How would you answer them? I think it'd be kind of fun to, to do a little bit of a, a survey among your family and your friends and maybe even coworkers. Just ask them, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do you think is at the core of Christianity? Because the reality is, as we think about what it means to be a Christian and, or what is at the core of Christianity, and we talk about it amongst ourselves, oftentimes we come up with all sorts of answers. And not everybody necessarily agrees on what is at the core of Christianity. And I submit to you this morning that it would be difficult. In fact, we would be hard pressed to find a better description of essential Christianity than what we have here in 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 21. So spoiler alert, here's what Peter tells us is at the core of being a Christian or at the core of Christianity. Christianity is a hope that produces holiness. I'll say that one more time. Christianity is a hope that produces holiness. So if you're looking for like a one sentence summary of this sermon this morning, here's what I have for you. The hope of the return of Christ fuels our holy and reverent living. The hope of the return of Christ fuels our holy and reverent living. And in our text this morning, the Apostle Peter gives three commands which will serve as our outline today. And here's, if you're a note taker, here's our outline for this morning. Number one, Christians, set your hope fully on future grace. That's verse 13. Number two, Christians, live holy lives. That's verses 14 through 16. And number three, Christians, live in reverent fear of the Father. Verses 17 through 21. So that's our outline this morning. If you'll join me, I want to go to our Lord in prayer one more time and ask for his help. Father, thank you for the gift of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Father, thank you that through Christ we have a secured future hope. And Lord, until that day that you call us home or when Christ returns, we ask that you would help us to set our hope fully on future grace, that you would strengthen us to live holy lives in light of this great hope that we have through Christ. Thank you, Father, for an opportunity to open up and hear from you through your word. May you bless it for your glory's sake and the good of everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians, settle your hope on future grace. That's our first point this morning. And if you're familiar with the book of 1 Peter, 
you'll understand that up to this point in our text, Peter has not given his readers a single thing to do. He's not issued a single command. Rather, Peter has spent 12 verses telling us glorious truths about what God has done for us through Christ. Peter wants his readers to behold, to marvel, and to adore God for who he is and what he has done for us. And it's only after establishing the glorious redemptive work God has provided us through Christ, only after establishing this work does Peter call his readers to action. And it's really, really important that we understand this order. We are called to obedience because of what Christ has done on our behalf, not the other way around. Remember, Christianity is a hope that produces holiness. And so in verse 13, Peter transitions from what God has done for us through Christ to how we are now to live. Look with me at verse 13. Peter says, therefore, or because of all that God has done through Christ, he says these words, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to point something out to you in verse 13. That in the Greek, there's only one imperative in verse 13. That is, set your hope. Everything else that might be looked at or rendered as a command in your English translation, like preparing your mind or being sober-minded, they're just participles that are supporting the main verb. The command is to set your hope. Remember Peter's original recipients. They were Christians who had experienced the life of exiles. In fact, he calls him that back in chapter 1, verse 2. These believers, they desired to follow Christ. They wanted to faithfully live out the imperatives of the Christian life, but they were not without opposition. Their future hope was hard to see when they were enduring the trials and the temptation and the suffering of their day. And if that wasn't enough, the culture all around them was so radically different from the holy lifestyle that they had been called to. And the power of their old passions, the power of the old passions of these believers that they used to embrace, it was, it was hard to fight against. And so these believers needed a greater power to lead them forward into obedience to God. They needed hope. The hope that Christ will return and that he will one day make all things right. He will vindicate his people. He will punish the wicked and he will establish his kingdom forever. And it is this hope that Peter instructs his readers and all believers to zero in on the grace that is coming at Christ's return. So how then do we as believers actually set our hope on future grace? Well, Peter tells us in verse 13, look at what he says. He says, preparing your minds for action. So the first way in which we set our hope on future grace 
is by preparing your minds for action. Friends, some of your translations might actually read girding up the loins of your mind, which is a literal translation. In the ancient world, men wore long robes. And so girding up the loins meant that you collected the folds of your robe. You would pull them together between your legs and either tie them around your waist or tuck them into a belt. And you did this in order so that you could run or or you could work or perform some kind of labor. I love how John Piper calls it. He says it's turning your robe into running shorts. Just praise the Lord we have running shorts now, right? More than likely... Peter is actually using language from Exodus 12, verse 11 here. You might recall that passage where God told the Israelites to eat the Passover with their robes tucked in and ready to go, ready to get out of Egypt because God was about to deliver them. And more than likely what Peter's doing here is he is applying that image to our minds. Meaning that he wants us to keep our minds sharp to be ready for action and to be zeroed in to the grace that is coming when Jesus returns. How do we do that? If you'll notice throughout the sermon, I love to ask questions. How do we gird up the loins of our mind or how do we prepare our minds for action? And I think Dr. Schreiner says it best when he says, hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. Let me say that to you one more time. Hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. Church, if we are to set our hope on future grace, it requires effort, concentration, and intentionality. If we fill our minds with the things of this world, we will not set our hope on future grace. I cannot hope fully in the grace that is mine at the coming of Christ when I am constantly being influenced or taking in the counsel of this world. No, friends, I hope fully in grace when my mind is zeroed in on the grace of Christ and the truth of his gospel. Transparency here. I have found a direct correlation between what I fill my mind with and what I hope in. Peter's exhortation in verse 13 is to think on the things of God. To think on scripture, to think on the things that are true and honorable and pure. Not the things that are false, dishonorable and wicked. So Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How? By preparing your minds for action. But secondly, he tells us, by being sober-minded. Notice the pattern here in the text. Peter is again dealing with our mind and with our thoughts. Peter is effectively saying, do not let your minds become intoxicated by that which would detract from the hope that belongs to you through Christ. This is an exhortation that goes well beyond a warning against drunkenness, although it is that. 
It is a warning against the world's influence upon your mind that would cause you to be indifferent to the hope that is yours in Christ. In other words, you cannot run in grace and truth if you are consumed by the world and its entertainment. Brothers and sisters, I say this in love and humility. If you find it hard, if you find it difficult to rope in the garments of your thinking to set your hope on future grace, it may be because you have become intoxicated by the things of this world. So Peter is calling believers to fuel their hope by girding up the loins of their mind and being sober-minded. In other words, to be active in the fight, to feed your minds with truth. Even when, as his readers were, going through sufferings and trials and many temptations. We, as followers of Christ, ought to set our hope on this future grace of Christ's Return, And we do so by preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. Brothers and sisters, I ask you this question. What is it that you fill your mind with? What is it that you fill your heart with? What is it that consumes you? Is it the trinkets of this world? Is it your present circumstances? Have your trials and, and your sufferings and your temptations, have the trinkets of the, this world detracted you or, or distracted you from setting your hope fully on the fact that there is a day when our God will return and he will make all things right again? As elect exiles walking through this world, we do not belong here anymore. Peter makes that clear. And so as we walk as exiles in this world, Peter wants all believers in all times to make sure that they are setting their hope, not here in the present day, but on the coming of Christ. So having called his readers to settle their hope on future grace through active and clear thinking on truth, Peter now calls his readers to live holy lives. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Point number two, Christians live holy lives. Christians live holy lives. Friends, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden back in Genesis chapter three, man has been incapable of living a holy life. All of us were born into this world helplessly infected by the disease of sin. Therefore, even our attempts at righteousness are corrupted by sin and selfishness. Peter's original recipients, man, they lived lives that were characterized by wickedness, evil, and sinful passions. Passions that were contrary to God and his holiness. Brothers and sisters, the same is true of us prior to salvation. 
Something happened to us just like it did to Peter's original recipients. In verse three of chapter one, Peter says that God the Father through the resurrection of Jesus Christ has caused them and all of us here that are professing Christians to be born again to a living hope, to inheritance that cannot be destroyed. We call this the new birth. And because of the new birth, we are now obedient children. Church, don't, don't miss what he's saying here. It is now in our nature to obey the Father. Therefore, Peter exhorts, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The mere fact that he reminds his readers not to go back to their sinful passions they possessed before they were saved is a wake-up call for every one of us in this room today. We must be alert. We must be sober-minded. We must be on guard against going back to what God has ransomed us from. We must fight to be holy. I heard one man put it this way. The new birth is the awakening of new desires, hence the call to be holy. But it is not the eradication of old desires. The new birth is the beginning of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not the destruction of the flesh. There will come a day when our sin nature will be destroyed and then we will no longer need to be commanded to be holy. But that glorification awaits the last day when Christ returns. Until then, we must fight, and please hear what I'm about to say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we must fight against going back to the passions of our former ignorance. How do we do that? How do you combat ignorance? With truth. You must, as, as Peter states, gird up the loins of your mind and be clear in your thinking, daily reminding yourself that holiness holds the promise of greater and lasting joy. Yes, sin may offer pleasure in the moment, but it is a fleeting, deceptive pleasure. Holiness offers joy that lasts for eternity. Do not, as Peter says, go back to your former evil desires that characterized your life before you became a follower of Christ. And Peter follows verse 14 with these words. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. I love Peter, right? He, he just says it like it is. He gives me hope. He doesn't hold any punches back here. He makes it clear that in light of the hope we Christians have through the resurrection, we are to be holy. As obedient children, we should take on the Father's traits. My oldest son, Titus, um, he cannot go anywhere with, the, with me without being told that he is a spitting image of his father. 
He looks like me, he acts like me, he talks like me, he has mannerisms much like I do. And so pray for him because he didn't get a choice in that. But truly, he is, it's very clear to people who see us together that he is my offspring, that he belongs to me. Church, listen, on a much greater scale, the same should be said of us. As the children of God, we should look, we should act, and we should love the things that our Father loves. In other words, God's children should look like God. And as such, we ought not to go back to our former, former sinful desires that characterize our lives before the Father adopted us into his family. The holiness of the believer's life is to match that of God. We should be progressing to look more like our Father, not more like the world. So Peter has commanded us as believers to not go back to our former sinful desires, but instead we are to be holy because God is holy. We must quickly ask, what does it mean to be holy and how can we be holy? So first, what does it mean to be holy? Well, I think we would all agree that God is the standard of holiness, yes? So God is the standard of holiness. So being holy means that our lives are conformed to God's purpose and God's character. If you are holy, friends, you are set apart from this world for God. Notice that in verse 15, Peter doesn't say to be holy in a portion of your life. No, he says to be holy in all your conduct. It's a comprehensive call to holiness. It involves every aspect of your life, from what you think to what you say to how you do, how you parent, how you are a spouse, how you work. In every aspect of your life, Peter says that you, follower of Christ, are to be holy. And notice that the call to holiness is rooted in what God is like. Look at verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Peter is quoting from the book of Leviticus here. You shall be holy, for I am holy. It shows up at least four different times in the book of Leviticus. Essentially what Peter is saying is, hey guys, you remember the Old Testament, right? You, you remember where God says that he is holy. And as such, his people are to be holy. Well, guess what? Here, under the new covenant, God is still holy and his people, the church, are to be holy. And I understand that this is not something that many Christians want to talk about. But you cannot get away from the clear-cut command that we as followers of Christ are to be holy since our Father is holy. We are to be distinct. And the reason we are to be holy or distinct is because the one who called us to salvation is holy and distinct. And verse 16 just really reiterates the truth that God's people are to pattern their lives after God himself. So we said, we asked two questions. We said, what does it mean to be holy? And two, how can we be holy? Well, it's simple, friends. By striving 
through the power of the Holy Spirit to model our lives after Christ. Dr. Haupt rightly states that holiness is whatever God delights in, whatever is pleasing to him. And Jesus always did what was pleasing to God. Therefore, Jesus is a perfect picture of holiness. To learn to be holy, we should look at the life of Christ as demonstrated in the Gospels. And we should seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to pattern our lives after Christ. If you want to be holy, well, friends, delight in what God delights in and hate what God hates. The call to be holy is not first a call to obey a list of commands. It is first a call to delight in what God delights in and to hate what he hates. We are holy when we delight in what God delights in and when we hate what God hates. But again, I really want to be very clear. Peter does not, and I do not want anyone walking away from this morning's gathering thinking that I just have to try harder. No, we, we dare not try to be holy on our own power. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ that we have hope in him and that we strive to be holy. Brothers and sisters, are you living lives that are marked and characterized by holiness? Southside Baptist Church, you collectively, are you a church that is characterized by a commitment to holy living? One of my favorite authors, J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, states, and I commend you to read this book, Holiness. J.C. Ryle states, our sins are often as dear to us as our children. We love them, hug them, cleave to them, and delight in them. To part with them is as hard as cutting off a right hand or plucking out a right eye. But it must be done. The parting must come. You and your sin must quarrel if you and God are to be friends. And then he says these words. A single day in hell will be worse than a whole life spent carrying the cross of Christ. God calls us through his word to a life of holiness. So again, I ask you, are you holy? A Christian who has settled their hope on future grace has a life that is marked and characterized by holiness. So because of the glorious inheritance that we have through the resurrection of Christ, Peter calls believers to one, set their hope fully in the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Two, to live holy lives. And now in verses 17 through 21, Peter instructs these believers, these elect exiles, to live in reverent fear of the Father. Look with me at verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christians, live in reverent fear of the Father. The only command in verses 17 through 21 is found at the end of verse 17 when he says, conduct yourselves with fear. Let me rehearse this one more time for us. Because of the inheritance and the salvation believers anticipate in verses 1 through 12, they should set their hope fully on the return of Christ, verse 13, and devote themselves to holy living, verse 15. And now we are commanded to live in reverent fear of the Father, verse 17. The remaining verses, 18 through 21, explain why believers should live in reverent fear. So let's first ask the question, what does Peter mean when he says in verse 17 that believers are to live in fear of God? Does he mean we should live in terror, always wondering if God is going to strike us down? I don't think so. I think the context makes it clear that Peter is instructing believers to live their lives with a holy, reverent fear and awe of what God has done for us. In other words, because of what God has accomplished for you, believer, this now is how you are to live with him. And this is how you are to conduct yourselves. The fear of the Lord, including his, the fear of his justice, is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7 tells us that, and Matthew 10, 28 says the same thing. So we should not be surprised here by Peter's words. The same one we call as father, the same one we call father, is the same one to whom we will stand before on the judgment day. Just as human children both honor, respect, and obey their parents who love them, so those who call God father should love, honor, respect, and obey him. If we seek his benefits, if we call him our father, we should act like his children, meeting the standards of his family. And notice what else Peter says. God, the father, also judges each man's work impartially. God does not look on the outward appearance. He doesn't play favorites. No, he judges our works, our deeds. Nothing is hidden from him. Jesus states that in Matthew 16, 27, he will reward each person according to what he has done. This is in no way nullifying justification by faith, but God will judge and Jesus will be proven right when he says in Matthew 7, 16, you will recognize them by their fruit. This is not salvation by works, but it reflects that wonderful truth that our works flow out of our heart's commitment so that genuine faith will show itself both in word and deed. So why should we live a life of reverent fear? Look at verse 18 with me. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And do you understand what Peter is telling us here, church? 
The reason we should live lives in reverent fear of God is because he has ransomed us with the blood of his one and only son. We, all of us, were inheritors of a futile, vain way of life before Christ came and rescued us. That was our inheritance, vanity. But through Christ, God the Father has provided us a glorious inheritance. How? By ransoming us, not with silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ. Your Bible might say that he redeemed us. It's the same word here. There has been a redemption price that has been paid to purchase us out of our futile, sinful way of life and into the family of God. And notice the cost of our redemption. It's the blood of Christ. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, well, this is the truth that we Christians can't stop talking about. We gather together to celebrate the death and the resurrection of our Lord who spilt his blood to, to ransom us. If you meet a Christian and you hear them talking about Jesus, it's because we understand we were without hope before Christ came and got us. And if you, Christian, know your Bibles well, you know that in the book of Exodus, we read that God redeemed and ransomed Israel from their house of slavery in Egypt. But now... He has performed an even greater redemption through a new and greater exodus through the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because God has ransomed us with such a costly price, the blood of Christ, Peter tells us that we are to live lives of reverence and awe. If you are here today and like I said, you are not a follower of Christ well, brothers and sisters, the good news is that Christ has come to purchase for himself sinners of whom every one of us are. Please understand this. Christ did not wait for us to clean up ourselves. He did not wait for us to become worthy of his sacrifice. No, Jesus died for us while we were still his enemies. Jesus came to us. He lived the life that we were supposed to live, died the death that we were supposed to die, raised from the dead, and has called us sinners to turn from our sins and trust in him for salvation. And those who do will be saved, and they will receive this glorious inheritance. Friend, if, if you are here this morning, if you've never repented of your sins, I implore you, please, to come and talk to one of the elders here. They would love nothing more than to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. Please know that at this very moment, Christ is calling you away from your futile way of living and into a glorious inheritance. To the Christian in here this morning, I have wonderful news for you. The one we call Father Genesis tells us he's our creator. Peter tells us he's our judge, but Peter also tells us that he's our redeemer. The one who redeems sinners was foreknown by God before the foundations of the world, verse 20 says. 
The one who shed his blood appeared in the last times for your sake and mine. That this one who shed his precious blood is the one that God raised from the dead and gave him glory. And what is the result of these actions? Look at verse 21. So that your faith and your hope are in God. If you have faith and hope in Christ this morning, it is because of the finished work of Christ. Brothers and sisters, behold, marvel, and adore our Savior this morning. Did you notice something in this passage? It begins and ends with hope. Peter bookends this passage by saying, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of the one and only true God, you are an exile, stranger here on earth, but you have a certain hope, a hope that is secured by God himself for you. Look at what length God has gone in order to rescue us sinners who are not worthy of this blood of Christ. So as we get close to the end of our time together this morning, believer, I want to implore you to just marvel at the work of Christ on your behalf. And church, in light of our glorious inheritance purchased by the precious blood of Christ, Peter makes it clear this morning that our lives ought to be, number one, marked by a settled hope on the coming of Christ. Number two, Our lives are to be marked by holiness. And number three, our lives ought to be marked by a reverent fear for Almighty God. So I ask you this question. What is it that marks your life? Is it a hope that has produced holiness? Southside Baptist Church, I humbly encourage you to be a church that is marked by a hope that produces holiness and reverent living.